0: Well if you'll turn with me in your Bibles to uh the letter of First Peter. First Peter chapter two. We have been working through this epistle now, and I went back and looked at our recorded sermons. I think we started this back in May. Is that right? Late April, early May. And we're I think we will finish up chapter two today. Last week, we we began reading in verse 18 and through 25, and we didn't quite get through all of this text, so I want us to return here to chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. I do want us to read all of this again, but we're going to focus uh, this morning on verses 21 through 25, so if you can, let us stand in reverence for the reading of God's Word. And we will read beginning in verse 18 of 1 Peter chapter 2. By his wounds you have been healed, By, uh, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's pray. Father God, your word always is rich, and as we gather here as a church, as your people, we thank you for giving us the insights of your scripture through your servant Peter. Lord, we are no different than the early church as they followed you and, and struggled to understand this new faith. Father, we are the same. And we struggle day to day in our daily context of where we live, where we work, our families, our schools, our communities. Lord, it is difficult to be a follower of Christ in a world that does not embody Christ. We are aliens here, Lord. And so we cry out to you and ask, Lord, that you would guide us each and every day in what it means to be your servants, what it means to be bought by the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, what it means to be Christ-like, God. That is difficult for us to grasp. But I pray, God, that through your mercies, you would love us, you would cast our sin upon the, the shoulders of your Son, Jesus, as you always do. But, God, that you would give us that spirit of Christ that you expect us to have whenever we are persecuted, whenever we are attacked. For this, God, we depend on you. And I thank you, God, for the richness of your word in guiding us through this. So teach us right now, I pray, God. Please fill this room with your spirit. Let our hearts hear every word clearly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Up until now in, in chapter 2 of First Peter, if we, if we wanted to have a theme here for the entire chapter, I think what Peter is trying to emphasize here to the church is this idea of authority. I mean, that, this, authority is a foreign concept in our day and age. We are independent lives. We, we are makers of our own destiny, right? We all have our independent personalities. We have our independent skills and our independent desires and wishes. And you know what? We all are different, right? Especially generationally. Don't you see a big difference between people generationally? You know, I never thought that I would be to the age where I would say, I don't understand that music. But I do now. I don't understand the video games that are so popular and consume the next generation. See, we had Pac-Man. Pac-Man was simple, right? Donkey Kong was simple. And my grandfather couldn't understand why I played Pac-Man but I loved it. So we have individual quirks, don't we? We're all unique. But that doesn't mean that we are masters of our own destiny. That doesn't necessarily mean that we have the authority to run our lives the way we see fit, do we? Because what happens biblically whenever that happens, when you read Scripture and you see men and women who actually go off and run their own lives the way they want to and ignore the authority of the gospel and the authority of the word, what happens? Now, God loves us and makes us all unique, but that doesn't mean that God's authority submits to that diversity and uniqueness. God is in authority, correct? And as Peter here is writing in, in chapter 2, he is encouraging the church as they are in exile. Remember, he's writing to those church, those Christians in the first century that were scattered throughout the Roman Empire. They were in exile. It is the diaspora, this idea of being exiled, of scattering around the Roman Empire, trying to find safety amidst the persecution. They were reestablished in new communities. They were aliens in these new places. They were suffering persecution. And as we were looking in verses 18 through 21 last week, it, it, Peter brings it home, doesn't he? He talks about two different kinds of masters. It's easy to live with respect toward the good master and and those gentle masters, those who are in charge of you or who are perhaps your employer. But it's difficult to submit to those who are unjust, who treat us inhumanely. Remember last week in verse 20, Peter brings out this idea of what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, I mean, that clearly shows you how drastic some of these Christians were under. If you are an alien in a community, what kind of job can you get? You're going to get the lowest of the low. You're going to get the jobs that no one else wants, and you are going to be at the bottom of the social ladder, and there are those above you who are going to, in, in this context, they would be beaten for what they Now, hopefully none of us in this room work for anybody that walks around with a whip and a beat and a bat beating us at work, do you? Has anybody got those bosses that beat you with a bat? Yeah, Tim's going to get me. <laughs> uh, I mean, think about this. I mean, it's, it's, great, and it's easy to be Christ-like to those good bosses. But it is difficult to be Christ-like to those in authority over us who treat us unjustly. That's hard. Peter here in this context is challenging the church. Be like Christ, even when they beat you. Love them. Does Jesus not say love your enemies? Does Jesus not say in his actions that when he laid down on the cross, did he fight back against his executioners? That's difficult for us to understand here. So let's look here in verses 21 through 25 and and kind of close out this passage here. We didn't get to this last week, but let's try to understand what exactly Peter is trying to get us to see. He says in verse 21, for to this you have been called, right? What is this that we are called to? We are called to suffering. We are called to be like Christ in his suffering. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And what is this example that Christ gives? It is the example of patience and bearing wrongdoing with a calm demeanor. If Jesus is going to suffer for the sins of the world, and that was why he suffered, all of our sins were poured onto the back of Jesus Christ. His shoulders carried the weight of our sin. Is that not the gospel? If you, are a, say, if you are a Christian, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, and you are following the Christ Christian life, has your sin been poured out on the back of Jesus Christ? Did he carry the weight of that guilt and of that punishment for you? That's the example here in verse 21 that Peter's reminding him. But did Christ complain? Did he bellyache? Anybody here like to bellyache? Got any whiners here? I see his little hands like this, right? Years ago, uh, I, I the first opportunity I had to be a teacher was um, in the early 90s, around 95 to 97. I was actually teaching a graphic arts class in a vocational school in Jonesboro, Tennessee. I taught for two years in a public high school. And I learned real quick in the first day that I had to set some classroom rules for teenagers. And I had Mr. Owens's uh, Ten Commandments for his classroom. I won't go through all the ten, but commandment number one was thou shalt not whine. And every other Uh, commandment from there if they say if you doubt if you have a question about this commandment refer to number one thou shalt not whine but we bellyache we whine and we complain in the midst of our suffering but did jesus do this i don't think we have that image here in the gospels nowhere in scripture do we get the indication that god himself actually complained and whined he carried the burdens of his sinful creation and he sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to carry the burden and the weight of our sin so that we would not have to endure that? Ponder that reality of the gospel. Does that not cause you to worship Christ because He did something so miraculous for us? Christians are called to be subject to authority. We are subject to Christ as our head, number one. But in this context that Peter is saying that as Jesus suffered and he is now the who has an authority over us through this, we must submit to Christ by submitting to those authorities over us, even those that we do not receive just treatment from. Now, wait a minute, Jesus. I'm in this exile I'm in this place of of turmoil. I'm an alien in this new place, and I'm working the jobs that no one else wants. Basically, you could say they were slaves almost. I'm being treated unjustly. I am being beaten by my master who does not see me as even valuable. How come I can't stand up for myself? Peter is saying here, as Christians in this new place, be Christ's witness. If Jesus paid the ultimate price for your sin, then you stand and carry the burden of the sin of your authority and the masters over you. They are sinning against you. You carry that burden of their sin, just like Jesus carried the burden of your sin. That's a deep, deep expectation of the Christian. I think that's what Peter is really inferring to here. Because let's take a look here in verse 22. He now in verses 22 and 23 begins to tell us exactly what kind of example that Jesus gave us. Right, Christ left an example for the faithful to be submissive. Verse 22. Speaking about Jesus. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. Jesus didn't whine. He didn't argue back against his persecutors, did he? Now, when Jesus did speak against anyone, he was against the corrupt authorities of the temple. The Jewish authorities who were distorting the the, the Mosaic law, he did from time to time put them in their place, didn't he? But he was justified in doing so because Christ had the authority even over them. But does he... Speak deceit or does he speak any kind of of uh moaning and crying whenever he was treated unjustly for us? No, he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. Verse 23. When he was reviled. He did not revile in return. When he suffered. He did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So the example of Christ here in verses 22 and 23 is, number one, Jesus didn't speak ill of his persecutors, but also when they reviled him, he did not revile in return. That to be reviled would be, you know, to be treated so harshly that you would want to respond in revenge. Anybody here ever ever deal with revenge? They did me dirty, I'm going to get them back. We've all been there, haven't we? Some of us may have had spouses who treated us so horribly that you just look for ways to get back at them. Right. Wives may be treated so horribly by their husbands that they may want to slip a little poison in their breakfast. Right? Husbands who may be treated unjustly by their wives may be looking for ways to get back at them. And they may lash out in violence or whatever. But we see here in verse 23, Jesus would have never done that. When he was treated unjustly, he did not treat them back the same way. He did not seek revenge. When he suffered, he did not threaten. When they punched him in the face, he stood there with peace on his face. No anger. He continued in the midst of all this suffering what does Jesus do in verse 23 He continued to trust himself to him who judges justly Who is who is this judge who judges everything rightly and, and in justice It is God himself Jesus the son continued to trust his father in the midst of the persecution and the suffering that he endured And this is the example that Peter is reminding the church. In the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your endurance of unjust treatment, when they are angry at you, when they curse you, when they gossip about you, when they beat you, you continue to trust God in the midst of that. Ponder that. That's hard, isn't it? Can we say an amen how hard that is? (laughs) Parents, if, if someone is treating your child Cruelly, is there a righteous indignation that comes up in you and I'm going to go make this right? And you go storming into the teacher's office and principal's office and your arms are going like this. Anybody ever done that? Or felt like you wanted to do that? What about going in as the Christian parent and listening to the authorities of the school to see what's going on? And then if you need to give your children side of the story, give it in a polite, Christ-like way. Amen. Anybody ever sat at work and at break time or at lunchtime at work and listened to all the gossip and the bitter complaining of all your fellow coworkers about how they don't treat us right here and they're you know, they should pay us more and my boss blah 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 laws and my boss blah 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 blah, that and, and this company blah 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 this. Anybody ever get caught up in that kind of a gossip fest at work? What would it look like if a Christian at work in the midst of that gossip session didn't participate in it, but then started speaking positive things about the workplace? what would, Man, that would just floor people. What, wait a minute. How come you're not getting on board with us? We're angry. We're, we're, go, we're going to be frustrated. We're going to be angry at our boss. Why don't you join us in this? And then they're going to get mad at you because they think that you're judging them. So not only... Now you got some persecution coming from your co-workers. You see where Peter's going here? What I mean, if Jesus was in that break room in the midst of all of that gossip and complaining, how would he react to that? Why is this? It's because Jesus has more authority than even the boss that's treating you horribly. Jesus has more authority than even all of your co-workers who are trying to control your thoughts. Jesus has more authority than any persecution and suffering that we endure. You see where we're going here? Peter is bringing out this important aspect of Christ's authority. He has the authority even those who killed him. He has authority even over those who caused him to die and suffer on that cross. He left an example for us to be submissive. Even to unjust masters. Verses 22 and 23 here bring out this important point. These verses in chapter 2 of 1 Peter, verses 22 and 23, are verses that have actually been used in, in history, in church history, to give uh, validation to an, an idea of the atonement. When we talk about atonement, we're talking about that price that's been paid for us for our sin, right? When our sin has been atoned for by Jesus Christ there is there are different theological perspectives here on what exactly the atonement looks like. These verses here in verses twenty two and twenty three are are key verses to a an argument called the christus Victor atonement. Christus Victor is an example of Christ who actually is the conqueror of all demonic authority over us. Have you ever heard that? That Jesus Christ on the cross, when He died on the cross for us, He actually took back the authority that Satan stole, and He is now the victor over all of demonic forces and over all sin. You ever heard that term? It's called the Christus Victor Model of Atonement. Now, is there anything wrong with this theological perspective? I mean, I think at its core, its intent, I think it's right. Because clearly passages like this show us that Jesus does become the victor over all demonic forces and all sin that's uh, that's controlling us. Are we slaves to sin? Yes. Does Christ's blood on the cross and his atonement for our sin release us from that slavery? Yes. So, in and, and, and one context, yes, Jesus is the victor over all of those things. That is correct. However, let's try to understand this Christus Victor view of atonement in relation to what is traditionally and actually more commonly seen in Scripture of substitutionary atonement. Right. This is why we have to understand it because we can look at this context of this passage and come away with a gospel that Jesus Christ has conquered our enemies and He is the the, the military victor over all things and He has crushed our enemies under His feet. Amen. Right. That feels good, doesn't it? That Jesus Christ has come against all of those enemies of ours and he has crushed them under his feet and he's the victor. Hallelujah. Military victory. Woohoo. But ponder that. In those words, in that attitude of crushing victory, what is actually at play here? Is it that God the Father sent his son Jesus to crush militarily? with an anger and a vengeance against all enemies of the faith. Does that sound Christ-like to take vengeance and glory and and sing praises over crushing your enemies? We would love for that to be our song, wouldn't it? (laughs) Makes us feel better, doesn't it? But ponder this. If our... Attitude of vengeance and revenge is wrong. How can we equate that same emotion with Jesus Christ? Would Jesus have that same emotion of vengeance and revenge? Really ponder that for a second. How can Jesus be the victor over all demonic forces and over all sin, but at the same time not take glory, and boast about getting back at the enemy. Yes, I think the Christus Victor model is correct and that Jesus Christ does overcome all hostile spiritual powers. Yes. Jesus does overcome all the sin that holds humanity in in, in slavery, really. But let's compare this with what the substitutionary atonement says. Did Jesus Christ suffer as a substitute for our sin? Yes. Did Jesus Christ suffer in our place? Yes. But if you and I were suffering for our sin, we would have this attitude of anger and getting back at those who were causing us harm. Which itself is a sin. If Jesus did suffer for us as our substitute, he would have to suffer in a way that was sinless. As it says in verse 22, he committed no sin. So how can Jesus be the substitute for us, suffer in our place, while at the same time overcoming the spiritual powers and the sin that holds us captive? Without revenge and without anger, and without getting back, and, and boasting about crushing Satan under my foot. Jesus would never go there with an attitude of boasting and arrogance and getting back revenge like you and I would. So this is where the idea of the Christus Victor versus substitutionary needs to be really cleared out here. The Christus Victor model, if you think about it, really emphasizes you and I as victims to the demonic sin that holds us captive. We are victims to this and we need a a victor to rescue us from because we are victims here. So the emphasis in the Christus Victor model can actually lead to a misunderstanding of the gospel that we as human beings are the source and the focus of the gospel. You see where we're going here? Is the gospel of Jesus Christ about you and me? I think yes, but also no. (laughs) It's about us in the fact that we are fallen in sin and that we cannot rescue ourselves out of that sin. We need a savior to redeem us and, and save us from this. But the emphasis is not us because we're not victims. How can we be victims if we've placed ourselves in sinful torment and sinful persecution? Do we not place ourselves into slavery of sin because we own our sin? Are we not responsible for our sin? I think mean, people are not responsible for their sin. It's not my fault. The devil made me do it. Right? So the Christus-Victor model can actually be misunderstood in the fact that we are not responsible for our sin, that we are victims, and we need a Savior to rescue us because we, we, we didn't do this. Satan did. However, if we are responsible for our sin, what do we deserve? We deserve punishment. We deserve separation from God. We deserve that. We're not victims. We've done this to ourselves. When our children misbehave, do we call them victims when we spank them? Or do we actually hold them accountable for what they've done wrong? So in the Christus Victor model, where Jesus is our victor and he overcomes the spiritual forces of sin and the demonic forces that hold us captive, what we're emphasizing is that we're victims to the demonic forces. We're not victims. We've placed ourselves there willingly. Because of that, we need a substitute to pay the penalty that we rightly deserve. That's Jesus Christ. So the substitutionary atonement here that we're talking about is that Christ endured a punishment that we deserve as a substitute for us, even though we rightly owe God payment back for our sin that we can never pay. See, in, in the Christus Victor model, humanity is the victim. But in the substitutionary model, humanity is guilty. You see the difference here? Now, how do we how do we apply this to what Peter's saying? I'm sorry, we kind of got off on a little sidetrack, but this is important. In verses 21 through 25 and actually all of chapter two, what Peter is bringing out here is this. You are being treated unjustly by the authorities over you in the places that you're living. Your your employer or your master, if you've actually sold yourself into uh, servitude, they may be treating you unjustly. But just as Jesus Christ does not see us as victims, just as Jesus Christ does not see himself as a victim, you yourselves are not victims in your circumstances. Even though they may be treating you unjustly, you do have a Savior who died for you on the cross, And but he didn't necessarily die to rescue you from your circumstances. He actually gives you an example of how to endure through the circumstances. You see the difference? I mean, that's that's a very appealing gospel that Jesus Christ has died on the cross to to rescue you from your horrible circumstances. I think more important. I think what Peter is saying here is, guess what, folks? Jesus didn't die on the cross to rescue you from this torment that you're in. He actually died on the cross to rescue you from your sin. He's the substitute for your sin and now he's your example. He suffered through torment and that's your example now. You suffer through the torment through the blood of Jesus Christ. Do not seek revenge against your unjust persecutors. That's hard. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is crushing our enemies under his feet is a very appealing gospel that really, if you think about it, just stirs up and justifies a sinful attitude of revenge. But Peter's saying here, don't seek revenge against those who treat you unjustly, those masters who are over you. Instead, as Christians, live an example of Jesus Christ. Be that witness, even when they treat you awful. When they, when the boss cuts your pay because someone has gossiped against you. When your children are being called to the carpet at school from a teacher or a principal that you think is unjust, as parents, how do we react, children? When your parents are disciplining you, children, listening, to children, all the kids listening. When your parents are disciplining you, are they being unjust? Do we seek revenge against our parents? Or do we submit as Christians to their authority because they know what's best for us? You see the difference here? Because it says here in verse 24, Peter says this, he being Jesus Christ himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. It's not that in verse 24 that Jesus died on the cross so that he would rescue us from our sin. It's that he died on the cross so that what? We might die to the sin that's holding us captive. He's giving us the opportunity to do so, the ability to do so. And in that doing though, we then live to righteousness in the example of Jesus Christ, because he now quotes Isaiah 53 here at the end of 24 and the beginning of 25. He says, by his wounds, you have been healed for you were straying like sheep. I mean, clearly this is Isaiah 53 uh, verses five to six. If you want to flip over there, you can read it. I'm just going to read a section of it. But this is another passage of scripture that has clearly been preached incorrectly. And I'm going to say in our area, in our communities that we live in. The rise of the of much of the Gospels that are being preached out there take this out of context and they apply this this passage to uh faith healing. Right. By his wounds, you have been healed. They take the translation of being healed and applying it to our, our illness and our sicknesses. That's a wrong application of this text. Does God heal through Jesus? Yes, Jesus heals. I mean, the Gospels are full of him healing people who are sick. It's there. Uh, the apostles in the New Testament, we have story after story after story of the apostles healing people from their sickness. It's possible. It's very much a part of the gospel. But this text does not mean that by Jesus' stripes, we are healed from all sickness. Instead, we are healed from sin. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5. Actually, I'm going to start reading a verse 4 if you wish to read. So verses 4 through 6. In Isaiah 53, this is what Peter is referring to here. He's referencing this idea in Isaiah in 1 Peter chapter 2. So, first, uh, Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Notice here the context in Isaiah is not talking about physical healing. It's talking about the afflictions of sin, the afflictions of iniquity. You know what iniquity is? When you hear that word iniquity in the Old Testament, it's referring clearly to our sinful behavior. It has absolutely nothing to do with our catching a cold or being healed from cancer. Now, if God heals us from cancer, he is worthy of our praise, hallelujah, but not out of this text. And Peter is applying this text in chapter 2 of 1 Peter in the context of Christians who are suffering under sinful masters. So if Jesus Christ carried the burden of our sin, is Jesus Christ also not carrying the burden and the weight of the sin of those evil masters who are treating us unjustly. i want to say that one more time. If Jesus is carrying the weight of our sin upon the cross, is Jesus also not carrying the weight of the sin of those unjust masters, of those who are in authority over us, who treat us unjustly? Now, when we think about that, That should give us as Christians a different perspective against those who are harming us. Wait a minute. Jesus carried my sin. He's also carrying their sin. Hmm. And so do do we then lash out at those unjust people who are treating us cruelly? Or do we actually see them in a different light as Peter wants us to see them? They are treating you unjustly. They are masters in authority over you and they are clearly sinning against you. But did Jesus also carry that sin? Maybe we should pray for them instead of seeking revenge against them. Maybe we should live a Christ-like example in front of them, even in the midst of their hurting us, so that they see the love of Christ. You see what Peter's talking about here? He closes out here in in verse 25. He says, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. Folks, I think this is important for us to see. Here's what John Calvin says about this. He says, for since it belongs to God to defend them or to defend the godly and to undertake their cause, they are to possess their souls in patience. If God Almighty has bought us with the price of his son, we belong to him. God has now taken upon himself the responsibility for defending his people. Who are we to take that responsibility away from God and go defend ourselves? If God has bought us with the price through the blood of his son, he also takes on the responsibility of that purchase to defend the godly, to defend the church, to defend the Christian. If God is going to defend them, Who are we to take that back from God? Because if we take it back, what we're doing, we are sinning even further by seeking revenge for ourselves. God has taken even that sin of revenge away from us so that he can deal with it. God's not going to seek revenge against those who treat us badly. God's going to seek their salvation as well. And he might be doing it through you and me. Does God use us as an example for others so that they can see the gospel? Maybe God's placed us in a situation of persecution so that we might be able to be a witness to the ungodly so that they see the love of Christ even in how we are treated. You treat me bad, I'm going to hit you right back in the nose. Did Jesus not say to love our enemies? Is there someone who is treating you unfairly right now? Is is there a situation that you say, I'm out of control, someone else is in control of me and I don't like it? In our society, it's very clear in the United States of America, this is no longer a Christian nation. Several years ago, I was preaching up in Monterey, and it was during the summer that the Supreme Court of the United States actually, it was the Obergefell decision on same-sex marriage. I said at that point, and many other people in in the pulpit have said the same, that right there was the final nail in the coffin. We are no longer a Christian nation persecution against the faith is, is 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 actually increasing we are not facing death squads people aren't lining us up against the wall and shooting us that's not what we're facing but it happens uh in, on college campuses it's becoming worse and worse i i served with intervarsity christian fellowship for five years I volunteered for a few years and then i worked for them for five back when i was working with intervarsity christian fellowship on the campus I mean, the Bible studies could go on freely. No issues. Matter of fact, people on the university campus encourage students to come to the Bible studies. But you know what has happened now? Intervarsity Christian Fellowship, other campus ministries. There's one called Christian Union that is on Harvard's campus. Just in 2018, numerous lawsuits have now been filed on behalf of the Christian organizations so that they can still stay on campus. College campuses, private and public, are telling Christian groups you are no longer welcome here because your bylaws do not agree with our diversity statements. And so Christian groups on campus are no longer allowed. It's becoming harder and harder. It's, going, it's It's a matter of time before that comes into the secular society. Folks, it could very well be in another few years that we are illegally meeting as a church. We don't know. I hope we don't get to that point. But who are we to say that, any, that we're any better than the, the history of the church? The church has always met illegally from the very beginning. How do we respond to that? Do we stand up for our rights? Do we fight back? Do we take up arms? Or do we stand back as Christians, as Peter is encouraging us, and you give the example of Christ in the midst of that? But it requires faith. And that's a testing of our faith. I'm going to close this in prayer, but if there's some... There's some business that you need to be doing with God if, 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 if you are actually in sin right now because of your attitudes of vengeance towards someone who is treating you horribly, I want to ask that you take the context here of this passage and apply it to your spirit and ask the Lord to give you the strength to stand up as a Christian with peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Amen. Because we can't do that when <laughs> apart from the blood of Christ and apart from the Spirit of Christ guiding us in that. Father God Almighty, we do thank you, Lord, for your word. You've not only given us the example of Jesus Christ in history, you've given us his example through the scriptures. And I pray, dear God, that we have heard well what you intend for us to to hear. But God, I also pray that if there is something that anyone in this room is dealing with, that they they need to be pouring out their heart to you, Lord, that your spirit would stir up in them a need to call out to you. God, it's possible that we got folks here who do not know Jesus Christ as their Savior. They have struggled with this idea of Christianity, this idea of the faith. And I pray, God, that your spirit would convict them, but also guide them. We just pray, God, that your word resonates truly. And that we would submit to you, God, as the authority that you are. I pray for your blessing on us, God. Keep us safe. In Jesus' name, amen.